Chapter Nineteen of the Hidden Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Hidden Places by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Nineteen. At noon next day, Hollister left the mess house table and went out to sit in the sun and smoke a pipe beyond the Rabelaisian gabble of his crew. While he sat looking at the peaks north of the valley, from which the June sun was fast stripping even the higher snows, he saw a man bent under a shoulder-pack coming up the slope that dropped away westward toward the Toba's mouth. He came walking by stumps and through thickets until he was near the camp. Then Hollister recognized him as Charlie Mills. He saw Hollister, came over to where he sat, and throwing off his pack made a seat of it, wiping away the sweat that stood in shining drops on his face. "'Well, I'm back, like the cat that couldn't stay away,' Mills said. The same queer undercurrent of melancholy, of sadness, the same hint of pain colored his words, a subtle matter of inflection, of tone. The shadowy expression of some inner conflict hovered in his dark eyes. Again Hollister felt that indefinable urge of sympathy for this man, who seemed to suffer with teeth grimly clenched, so that no complaint ever escaped him. A strange man, tenacious of his black moods. "'How's everything?' Mills asked. "'You've made quite a hole here since I left. Can I go to work again?' "'Sure,' Hollister replied. This summer will just about clean up the cedar here. You may as well help it along if you want to work. It isn't a case of wanting to. I've got to, Mills said under his breath. Already he was at his old trick of absent staring into space, while his fingers twisted tobacco and paper into a cigarette. I'd go crazy loafing. I've been trying that. I've been to Alaska and to Oregon, and blew most of the stake I made here in riotous living. He curled his lip disdainfully. It's no good. Might as well be here as anywhere. So I came back, like the cat. He fell silent again, looking through the trees out over the stone rim under which Bland's house stood by the river. He sat there beside Hollister until the bolt gang, moving out of the bunkhouse to work, saw and hailed him. He answered briefly. Then he rose without another word to Hollister and carried in his pack. Hollister saw him go about selecting tools, shoulder them, and walk away to work in the timber. That night Hollister wakened out of a sound sleep to sniff the air that streamed in through his open windows. It was heavy with the pungent odor of smoke. He rose and looked out. The silence of night lay on the valley, over the dense forest across the river, upon the fur-swathed southern slope. No leaf stirred. Nothing moved. It was still as death. And in this hushed blackness, lightened only by a pale streak in the north and east that was the reflection of snowy mountain crests, standing stark against the skyline, 
this smoky wraith crept along the valley floor. No red glow greeted Hollister's sight. There was nothing but the smell of burning wood, that acrid, warm, heavy odor of smoke, the invisible herald of fire. It might be over the next ridge. It might be in the mouth of the valley. It might be thirty miles distant. He went back to bed to lie with that taint of smoke in his nostrils, thinking of Doris and the boy, of himself, of Charlie Mills, of Myra, of Archie Lawan. He saw ghosts in that dusky chamber, ghosts of other days, and trooping on the heels of these came apparitions of a muddled future, until he fell asleep again to be awakened at last by a hammering on his door. The light of a flash lamp revealed a logger from the car settlement below. The smoke was rolling in billows when Hollister stepped outside. Down toward the inlet's head there was a red flare in the sky. "'We've got to get everybody out to fight that,' the man said. "'She started in the mouth of the river last night. If we don't check it and the wind turns right, it'll clean the whole valley.' We sent a man to pull your crew off the hill. In the growing dawn, Hollister and the logger went down through the woods thick with smoke. They routed Lawan out of his cabin, and he joined them eagerly. He had never seen a forest fire. What bore upon the woodsman chiefly as a malignant, destructive force affected Lawan as something that promised adventure, as a spectacle which aroused his wonder his curious interest in vast elemental forces unleashed. They stopped at Bland's and pressed him into service. In an hour they were deployed before the fire, marshaled to the attack under men from cars, woodsmen experienced in battle against the red enemy, the spoiler of the forest, with his myriad tongues of flame and breath of suffocating smoke, in midsummer the night airs in those long inlets and deep valleys move always toward the sea. But as day grows and the sun swings up to its zenith, there comes a shift in the aerial currents. The wind follows the course of the sun until it settles in the westward, and sometimes rises to a gale. It was that rising of the west wind that the loggers feared. It would send the fire sweeping up the valley. There would be no stopping it. There would be nothing left in its wake but the blackened earth, smoking roots, and a few charred trunks standing gaunt and unlovely amid the ruin. So now they strove to create a barrier which the fire should not pass. It was not a task to be perfunctorily carried on. There was no time for malingering. There was a very real incitement to great effort. Their property was at stake. Their homes and livelihood, even their lives, if they made an error in the course and speed of the fire's advance and were trapped. They cut a lane through the woods straight across the valley floor from the river to where the southern slope pitched sharply down. They felled the great trees and dragged them aside with powerful donkey engines to manipulate their gear. They cleared away the brush and the dry windfalls until this lane was bare as a traveled road, so that when the fire ate its way to this barrier, 
there was a clear space in which should fall harmless the sparks and embers flung ahead by the wind. There, at this labor, the element of the spectacular vanished. They could not attack the enemy with excited cries, with brandished weapons. They could not even see the enemy. They could hear him. They could smell the resinous odor of his breath. That was all. They laid their defenses against him with methodical haste, chopping, heaving, hauling the steel cables here and there from the donkeys, sweating in the blanket of heat that overlaid the woods, choking in the smoke that rolled like fog above them and about them. And always in each man's mind ran the uneasy thought of the west wind rising. But throughout the day the west wind held its breath, the flames crawled, ate their way, instead of leaping hungrily. The smoke rose in dun clouds above the burning area, and settled in gray vagueness all through the woods, drifting in wisps, in streamers, in fantastic curlings, pungent, acrid, choking the men. The heat of the fire and the heat of the summer sun in a windless sky made the valley floor a sweat-bath, in which the loggers worked stripped to undershirts and overalls, blackened with soot and grime. Night fell. The fire had eaten the heart out of a block half a mile square. It was growing. A redness brightened the sky. Lurid colors fluttered above the hottest blaze. A flame would run with incredible agility up the trunk of a hundred-foot cedar to fling a yellow banner from the topmost boughs, to color the billowing smoke, the green of nearby trees, to wave and gleam and shed coruscating spark showers and die down again to a dull glow. Through the short night the work went on. Here and there a man's weariness grew more than he could bear, and he would lie down to sleep for an hour or two. They ate food when it was brought to them. Always, while they could keep their feet, they worked. Hollister worked on stoically into the following night, keeping Luan near him, because it was all new and exciting to Luan, and Hollister felt that he might have to look out for him if the wind took any sudden dangerous shift. But the mysterious forces of the air were merciful. During the twenty-four hours there was nothing but little vagrant breezes and the drafts created by the heat of the fire itself. When day came again, without striking a single futile blow at the heart of the fire, they had drawn the enemy's teeth and clipped his claws, in so far as the flats of the toba were threatened. The fire would burn up to that cleared path and burn itself out, with men stationed along to beat out each tiny flame that might spring up by chance. And when that was done, they rested on their oars, so to speak. They took time to sit down and talk without once relaxing their vigilance. In a day or two the fire would die out against that barrier always provided the west wind did not rise and in sport of mockery fling showers of sparks across to start a hundred little fires burning in the woods behind their line of defense. 
A forest fire was never beaten until it was dead. The men rested, watched, patrolled their line. They looked at the sky and sighed for rain. A little knot of them gathered by a tree. Someone had brought a box of sandwiches, a pail of coffee, and tin cups. They gulped the coffee and munched the food and stretched themselves on the soft moss. Through an opening they could see a fiery glow topped by wavering sheets of flame. They could hear the crackle and snap of burning wood. "'A forest fire is quite literally hell, isn't it?' Lawan asked. Hollister nodded. His eyes were on Bland. The man sat on the ground. He had a cup of coffee in one hand, a sandwich in the other. He was blackened almost beyond recognition, and he was viewing with patent disgust the state of his clothes, and particularly of his hands. He set down his food and rubbed at his fingers with a soiled handkerchief. Then he resumed eating and drinking. It appeared to him a matter of necessity rather than a thing from which he derived any satisfaction. Near him, Charlie Mills lay stretched on the moss, his head pillowed on his folded arms, too weary to eat or drink, even at Hollister's insistence. "'Dirty job this, eh?' Bland remarked. "'I'll appreciate a bath. Whew! I shall sleep for a week when I get home.' By mid-afternoon of the next day, Sam Carr decided they had the fire well in hand, and so split his forces, leaving half on guard and letting the others go home to rest. Hollister's men remained on the spot in case they were needed. He and Lawan and Bland went home. But that was not the end of the great blaze. Blocked in the valley, the fire, as if animated by some deadly purpose, crept into the mouth of a brushy canyon and ran uphill with demonic energy until it was burning fiercely over a benchland to the west of Hollister's timber. The fight began once more. With varying phases it raged for a week. They would check it along a given line and rest for a while, thinking it safely under control. Then a light shift of wind would throw it across their line of defense, and in a dozen places the forest would break into flame. The fire worked far up the slope, but its greatest menace lay in its steady creep westward. Slowly it ate up to the very edge of Hollister's timber, in spite of all their checks, their strategy, the prodigious effort of every man to check its vandal course. Then the west wind, which had held its breath so long, broke loose with unrestrained exhalation. It fanned the fire to raging fury, sent it leaping in yellow sheets through the woods. The blaze lashed eagerly over the tops of the trees, the dreaded crown fire of the north woods. Where its voice had been a whisper, it became a roar, an ominous warning roar to which the loggers gave instant heed and got themselves and their gear off that timbered slope. They could do no more. 
they had beaten it in the valley. Backed by the lusty pressure of the west wind, it drove them off the hill and went its wanton way unhindered. In the flat by Hollister's house, the different crews came together. There was not one of them but dropped with exhaustion. They sat about on the parched ground, on moss, against tree trunks, and stared up the hill. Already the westerly gale had cleared the smoke from the lower valley. It brought a refreshing coolness off the salt water, and it was also bearing to their sight the spectacular destruction of the forest. All that area where Hollister's cedars had stood was a red chaos out of which great flames leaped aloft and waved snaky tongues, blood-red, molten gold, and from which great billows of smoke poured away to wrap in obscurity all the hills beyond. There was nothing they could do now. They watched it apathetically, too weary to care. Hollister looked on the destruction of his timber most stolidly of all. For days he had put forth his best effort. His body ached. His eyes smarted. His hands were sore. He had done his best without enthusiasm. He was not oppressed so greatly as were some of these men by this vast and useless destruction. What did it matter, after all? A few trees, more or less? A square mile or two of timber out of that enormous stand? It was of no more consequence in the sum total than the life of some obscure individual in the teeming millions of the earth. It was his timber. So was his life a possession peculiar to himself. And neither seemed greatly to matter. Neither did matter greatly to anyone but himself. It was all a muddle. He was very tired, too tired to bear thinking, almost too tired to feel. He was conscious of himself as a creature of weariness sitting against a tree, his scarred face blackened like the tired faces of these other men, wondering dully what was the sum of all this sweat and strain, the shattered plans, the unrewarded effort, the pain and stress that men endure. A man made plans, and they failed. He bred hope in his soul and saw it die. He longed for and sought his desires always to see them vanish like a mirage just as they seemed within his grasp. Lawan and Bland had gone home, dragging themselves on tired limbs. Carr's men rested where they chose. They must watch lest the fire back down into the valley again and destroy their timber, as it had destroyed Hollister's. They had blankets and food. Hollister gave his own men the freedom of the house. Their quarters on the hill stood in the doomed timber. The old log house would be ashes now. He wondered what Doris was doing, if she steadily gained her sight. But concrete, coherent thought seemed difficult. He thought in pictures, which he saw with a strange detachment, as if he were a ghost haunting places once familiar. 
he found his chin sinking on his breast. He roused himself and walked over to the house. His men were sprawled on the rugs, sleeping in grotesque postures. Hollister picked his way among them. Almost by the door of his bedroom, Charlie Mills sprawled on his back, his head resting on a sofa cushion. He opened his eyes as Hollister passed. "'That was a tough game,' Hollister said. "'It's all a tough game,' Mills answered wearily and closed his eyes again. Hollister went on into the room. He threw himself across the bed. In ten seconds he was fast asleep. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline.